We're going to begin uh, chapter 18 in a minute. Uh, I just, I don't know if that's the case, but just to give you an opportunity. Last week, we really the last several weeks, we spent on chapter 17, a very important chapter in the Bible. It really is. So I just wondered if over the week you had any pressing questions that you just could not get out of your mind and you just had to get an answer to. So uh, are there any of those before we move on? Do we know, just because the next chapter begins after this, Paul left Athens, I mean, yeah. do we know kind of the result of the speech and the impact it had? You know, uh, the only, uh, that's a great question, the only evidence we have of, of any significant long-term impact was Dionysius, the man who was mentioned there at verse 34, Dionysius the Areopagite. Church tradition, and remember that it's not in the Bible, but it's church tradition, church history, uh, tells us that he became, eventually, he became the head of the Athenian church. Uh, and he is therefore called Saint Dionysius today. And there is a church, and actually you can see the, the, the remnants of it. There's a church that was supposedly built uh, by his congregation, and it was called the Church of Saint Dionysius. So I think that's the nature of your question. That's the only uh, verifiable long-term impact of, of uh, the, the message in Athens, uh, uh, Marcel in Athens that Paul made. But uh, assuming that's true, and I have no reason to doubt that it's true, that's significant because this man, as because he's named as the Areopagite, he would have sat on that council. And for him to come to faith in Christ, and I mean, in effect, turning his back on all the philosophical assumptions of being the Greek, and then becoming a leader of the church and the leader of the church in Athens, that's remarkable. That's a remarkable uh, impact that, uh, that you can, you can uh, see. I wish we had lots. That's the, I mean, I'm, I'm still in a story in the heart, and I just want to know more and more and more. I'm thinking, why didn't he just explain to us like a very significant impact long term? You know? but, but the impact is it's written in Scripture. I mean, we have that. We can still study it today. Well, Glenn and I talked about this briefly, but throughout the uh, 17, he talks about the risen Christ and the sovereignty of God, but he never gets into the Trinity. Why is it he never talks about the Trinity? Well, I, th- I think uh, in, in some places he does. Ephesians, he does extensively. But I think part of it here would be this: that would be a very difficult concept for the Athenians to to deal with. I mean, for them to even process and think about that, that would be very, very difficult. But uh, as he, in in some of his other letters, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Ephesians, Ephesians is sometimes nicknamed the Trinitarian Epistle because it's such an extensive focus on the Trinity. You see it right away in chapter 1, that great prayer of Paul's in the first 14 verses of chapter 1. Um, you see it in um, quite extensively in the book of Romans. There's a lot on how he divides up the book around the Trinity. But uh, that's the only reasonable answer, I think, is they would have had no way to process this and understand this. There would have been no an analogy Paul could have drawn. Um, can I go down a bunny trail for just a second? This is, yeah. it was, I was reminded of this uh, uh, yesterday, because of the snow and everything, almost everything was canceled that I was supposed to be involved in. But anyway, so I spent the time studying and, and putting together material. I'm teaching a class at my church on worldviews. It's sort of based on the book I wrote. But anyway, so I was preparing the me- me- uh, the lesson. It's it's a study. It's a class. So it isn't a message. It's a sermon on Hinduism. And I was reminded again. I don't know how much you know about Hinduism, but. Hinduism is polytheistic, pantheistic. It's, it's really hard to get your arms around. But it's really interesting. They believe there's an eternal force, they call it Brahman, and he manifests himself in the Trinity. I mean, it's really Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the protector, and um, Shiva, the destroyer. They're, they're the three manifestations of Brahman, the force. And I just thought that uh, I thought that was just interesting. Even Hinduism uh, ends up having a Trinitarian manifestation of the eternal force. Which one of those three is superior to the, the Trinity? Which one was what? Each one of those three that you mentioned, 
Uh, you don't have to go like that. I can hear you. I just are superior uh, to. Um, they're not. They don't rank them. I mean, in Hinduism. To the Trinity, don't, aren't they overriding? Is that what you're saying there? Uh, no, I'm not sure, Fred. I'm not quite sure what you're asking. The what they teach is that again. This is really you have to understand where Hinduism is coming from. This force that is that the impersonal force is not a personal God. They call Nagurna Brahman, and Nagurna Brahman has manifested himself in millions of gods, but three primary manifestations: Brahma. Vishnu and Shiva, and uh, I mean I I'm telling you more than you care to know that you want to know. But I would just found that as I was studying that again, I found that remarkable that even a Trinitarian nature of the divine is a part of something like Hinduism, and it's just it's a fascinating. And you will see as you go through the um, statues and really their idols that are associated with Hindu worship, uh, those three are, and they're depicted in many different ways, oh, multiple ways, but they keep driving back. And uh, each one, Shiva and Vishnu particularly, are very important. The destroyer and the protector. And uh, how, they, uh, how they deal with those things to try to explain the world. It's really fascinating. Woody? This is kind of a basic uh, bunny trail, uh, but you made reference to the gentleman that later became a saint, mm -hmm. and I was going to Catholic church and school when I was a child, and there was often reference about saints. However, I don't see much of that in any of our studies here. <laughs> that was intentional. Is that all later? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Uh, well, that is a bunny trail, Woody. Um, but you said it's right. yeah. Well, and I, I I said that because of uh, later, quite a bit later, hundreds of years later, in the institutionalized Roman Catholic Church, they declared him to be a saint. That's right. The Bible doesn't. But I mean, that gets into a whole. Uh, Bunny trailer, I'd like to quickly pull us back from that, and get us back to. Chapter 18, we're continuing the missionary journey. As a matter of fact, in chapter 18, the, the second missionary journey finishes and the third missionary journey starts. Unlike the, the first and second, was a very distinctive break and so on. Uh, there's not here, so we'll, we'll see that in a minute. But uh, again, if you're following on the map, there are a couple of them in the notes, but um, page 7 uh, is perhaps one of the best. There's one on page 9, too. But I just want you to see a little bit of the, of the relationship here of, of Paul's ministry. After this, Paul, this meaning the speech on the Areopagus, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, that, let's talk a little bit about that. You can see, if you look on the map, where Corinth is as, as respective, in respect to, to Athens. Corinth is a little bit to the west, not, not that great distance. But in this map, you can't see it because it's, it's a pretty small area of a much larger eastern Mediterranean map. But Corinth sits right on an isthmus. You know what an isthmus is? A little bridge of land that connects two larger, okay? It sits right on that. Corinth was an extremely important Greek city. Uh, and it was an extremely important Greek city because of its location. It was key to the trade. Um, they, it was so important. Later, a little bit later in history, they will dig a canal the whole way across, connecting the Aegean and the Adriatic Sea. I mean, it's really, really an important area. It was a uh, population of close to 200,000 which made it a very large city, but it was the kind of city where um, you would have at any given day or any given week or any given season of the year, you had people from all over the empire there because of it's a trading city. And so it was very cosmopolitan, and it was extremely immoral. I mean, it was probably, in terms of its reputation, it was a little bit like what 
sections of New York City or sections of Chicago or even sections of L.A. You just know they're the red district, as they used to call them. Well, almost the whole city of Corinth was like that because the god goddess that was central in Corinth, Aphrodite, would foster immorality because you would go into the temple and worship and then you would engage with a temple prostitute as a form of fertility worship. I mean, it's gross immorality. I mean, just unbelievable immorality. Even as saturated as our society is with sex, we would almost be offended being in Corinth. And so a, a word was coined in the Greek language at this time called Corinthiadzomai, which that's a Greek word, which means you are acting like a Corinthian. That was not a compliment. If you would say that to somebody in A.D. 50, you weren't paying them a compliment. You were saying you were acting like a very immoral, grossly negligent person when it comes to taking care of your body. These, and these people were known for immorality, drunkenness, and it was like all the merchants would love to go there because they'd do their business, but then they'd also have a place to play. So Corinth, it's, it's just fascinating. That Paul wants to uh, plant a church there. What was the term again? Uh, Corinthi, <laughs> Corinthiadzmai. Yeah. Do you want? Write, did you, do you want me to write it down? I mean, it's it's. Well, I'll write it down. Now this is going in the quiz next week, and you got to spell it. <laughs> You're acting like a Corinthian. One other thing, just to mention it. Um, back earlier in, in history, in 44 BC, when Julius Caesar was conquering Macedonian Greece, he made this decision because Greece at this time was not a unified country. It was just a series of, of city-states. Sparta, Athens, Corinth, Thebes, all these different things. So this is what Julius Caesar decided to do. I'm going to choose one city, I'm going to burn it down. And I'm going to say to the rest of the city-states, if you do not submit to the Roman Empire, this is what's going to happen to you. And he chose Corinth. And so the, the, the city that Paul is, is visiting is a rebuilt city. It's new. It's got all of the plush... Um, Buildings and temples, Temple of Aphrodite was prominent, but many, many others as well. So this is a key city. And Paul, presumably under the inspiration and guidance of the Spirit, but Paul is choosing this key city as he chose Ephesus, as he chose Philippi, Thessalonica, which we talked about earlier, and so on. So it's, it's fascinating what happens here. Because as you undoubtedly know, the city of Corinth, and I really should say the churches at Corinth, had a special place in Paul's heart. They, they were problems for him. He wrote four letters to the Corinthians. Two of them are canonical. Two of them are in the New Testament. He refers to the other two in his book. And of course, it's 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And the reason that's so valuable to us is because in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you really see the struggle that these early Christians had living in a pagan, immoral, corrupt society. And I love to teach 1 Corinthians particularly because 1 Corinthians, much of it is basically Paul responding to a series of questions they ask him. And after you can outline the book that way. Here's, the, here's his next question. And it's like Jeopardy. We have his answer. We have to figure out what the question was. And so it's, it's really, it's, it, this is a very important church plant here. That he is in Corinth and the church he's going to plant in Corinth becomes a very, very important city. Uh, I should really say church in this city for the New Testament. And even after the first century, into the second century, you have an early leader of the church, his name is Clement. He's writing letters to the Corinthians, still dealing with the same issues. The, and it just shows us the, the enormity of coming out of a grossly immoral, corrupt 
city and coming to know Christ and trying to live in that kind of a culture. How do I live in that culture? And that's why I often, particularly depending on the context, I'll refer people to Corinthians because in many ways, living in the United States today, especially in the urban areas, is becoming more and more like the first century. And so what Paul's saying to them is instructive for us today. And I, I just, uh, that, that's why what we're about to, I can go on a lot of bunny trails, and I don't want to do that. I want to stay to the text uh, of, of Acts. Uh, Jim, if we take the uh, entire globe, in our world, uh, at this time, we're, we're the countries where Christianity, I mean, it's hard to imagine all these people going to hell because they aren't Christians because Christ has come and this is post-Christ period. And yet God revealed himself, did he not, to other populations that existed in the current world, because North America wasn't even uh, much of a, a continent then as far as population. We had probably some people here, but how, how do you address that conceptually from a Christian point of view and the equity of God in dealing with those individuals, not necessarily knowing his thought processes, but understanding how those, the rest of the world's population, how was there a connection then with God? Such a simple question. The Apostle Paul did address a little bit of that in chapter 17 in his address when he said to them, God, the unknown God that you guys worship, he says, I'm walking up here, I see the statue of the unknown God. Um, he said he's the creator. He is the one who's created everything, including you, and he's put you in a place, earth, which is, is conducive to human flourishing. And he's given everything you need. In addition, he has set the boundaries of time, and he set the boundaries, and he has been available to you through his creation, which really is an important link that he mentions in other parts. Um, may I use the second? That God... I think we've talked about this before a little bit, but God reveals himself in four major ways. In creation. And that's what Paul was talking about in Acts 17. And he alludes, he just alludes to this a little bit, but this is also in Romans chapter 2, all about 1 through... 15, I think, very close to that. His moral law, of course, is the Ten Commandments, but also his entire written revelation. I'm not going to write all that. And, of course, Jesus, the historical figure of Jesus, and all that, that he has done. So, I mean, as, and Paul says this to them there on Mars Hill. Everything... Everything that you need to live comes from his good hand. That, and he said, he is easy to find. It's not that he's hidden from you. He's easy to find. So Fred, the question we ask is, if God has revealed himself in creation and you didn't respond to it, and you create idols instead of worshiping him, are you accountable for that? If in your heart, he has innately placed a sense of right and wrong as a child, and you begin, but you then suppress that and harden that, are you accountable? Yes. And so I'm saying to each one of these levels, this is, this is what we call general revelation, and this is special revelation. And how the human race responds to each one of those uh, in, insists on accountability. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, no human being is going to be able to stand before God and be without excuse. They're never going to be able to say, I didn't know about you. And God will say, did you ever try to understand that sunset you observed yesterday? Where'd that come from? Why is that so beautiful? All right, so that's equity for all mankind. 
That's correct. That's correct. And no one is ever going to be able to stand before God and say, I never knew about you. I never said in Jim Ackman's Bible study, I was never in a church. I never even went to a church. It wasn't a church. I mean, none of that is an excuse when you have... And there's another principle, just to quickly add to this, there's another principle that Paul also alludes to in Acts 17, but is in other parts of the scripture. As you respond to general revelation, God sends special revelation. You see what I'm saying? As you respond to general, God sends special. But it, I mean, it's just, it's how are you going to respond? You know, I, the school I went to, uh, one of the graduate schools I went to, anyway, um, they every year have an annual speaker. And years ago, this is way back in the 70s, they had Francis Schaeffer do a five-part lecture there. And that became the basis of his book. He is there, and he's not silent. And of course, let me just figure out who he is. It's God. God is there, and he's not silent. That's what Paul's saying to the Athenians. He is there. He's not far from you. You don't have to say, well, I'll never be. No, that's what Paul's saying. No, he is easily acceptable. And he's usually accessible, is what I meant to say. And so, I mean, that's... You cannot charge God with being unjust or unfair. And here's a good example of it. Can we go on? We're still in verse 1. So he's moved to Corinth. I've tried to explain why that was a strategic move. And this is wonderful here. And he found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus, Pontus Pontus is over in what today would be Turkey, recently come from Italy, and with his wife Priscilla, she's also called Prisca, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Why? Okay, that's what I'm going to explain. We know that from extra-biblical history. But when, who's Claudius? Claudius is a Caesar. He's the Caesar of Rome. In A.D. 49, Caesar Claudius issued a decree demanding that all Jews leave Rome because there were a series of riots in Rome over debates concerning Christus. Now, Christus is Latin for Christ. So, in AD 49, Claudius pushed every Jew out of Rome because the controversy over Christus was causing riots. And so, in God's sovereignty, he had Priscilla and Aquila end up in Corinth. Now, we're going to learn a lot more about Priscilla and Aquila as we go through this book, and they are mentioned in other books of the New Testament as well. They were, remar- they were a remarkable couple. And we're going to read this in the next chapter. And they will disciple probably the greatest preacher of the first century church, Apollos. They, they will disciple him. We're going to read about him coming up in the next chapter. So this isn't coincidental that, that they are there and Paul meets them. Because they're going to be, they're going to mutually complement one another's ministry, which is going to further expand the gospel. So it's really it's quite neat. Continuing, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Now that the term, the Greek term that's translated tent maker, could be more broadly understood as workers of leather. Now, they're not just making tents, but, I mean, you know, you know, you know what leather is. I mean, like clothing and coverings over uh, uh, buildings, uh, uh, things that could be used in footwear. I mean, so it, we're not quite sure exactly what that Greek word means, but it was a profession because Paul makes much of this so that I do not have to p- depend on you guys for my sustenance I'm going to have a trade that will yield me enough income to live. And that trade was, that's why some, I'm sure there's a whole ministry called the Tent Makers. It's a great ministry. Peggy and I support it. But they're involved in getting people into cultures which do not accept Christianity, but they when they get another job, but they're really there to represent Christ. 
that's kind of where that comes from, from that allusion to being tent makers. So they have, they have a commonality. They're both using a profession to support themselves. What they're really doing is representing Christ. So now we've got Paul with Aquila and Priscilla, verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Remember, many, many Greeks had come into the temple uh, synagogue, converted to Judaism, and so on. That's why they're saying that. All right, now, it's just, it's, it's, I want you to just notice again those two words, reasoned in verse 4 and persuade in verse 4. They're two important words. They both suggest almost like a debate. And it was perhaps more typical in a synagogue situation for that to occur. So, I mean, I just want you to understand. I mean, he isn't interested in their lecturing. It's a Q&A. It's, I mean, they're the kind of things that are inferred from the two words we translate reason and persuade. But naturally, because this is a pretty good Jewish population here in Corinth, um, this would be reasonable because he always went to synagogue first. All right, now let's continue. Verse 5. No questions. Everybody's with me, right? Mm-hmm. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, now that reminds you all the way back to chapter 16, that when Paul had to flee Thessalonica and Berea, he left Silas and Timothy up there. So now they've come back. Paul was occupied with the word that's <laughs> that is really a great word there occupied with the word you could translate that absorbed with the court you could translate that devoted to the word I mean, this isn't a cursory term here's just an, this guy's occupied absorbed and devoted to the word of god testifying to the jews that the christ was jesus Yes, uh, Glenn. But at this point, we don't have the New Testament. So really absorbing into the Old Testament, correct? That would be correct. Mm-hmm. He's working with Jews. And so uh, as he's reasoned, dialogamai is the Greek word there, as he's dialoguing, reasoning with them, what do you think he's doing? Taking the 357 prophecies about the first advent of Jesus and saying, here, here's the prophecy, here's what Jesus did. Here's the prophecy, here's what Jesus did. What do you guys think about that? Well, explain to me that third prophecy that's in Micah 5.2. Okay, sit down and I'll explain it to you. And so there's this dialogue, there's this incredible focus on the authority of the Old Testament prophecies with the proof that what? That the Messiah, whom you guys are all expecting, is Jesus. He's come. And that's just... You and I, I mean, I've been with Jewish people all my life, particularly in the last 25 years, but the Orthodox Jew today is still excited about thinking of the Messiah. In the first century, almost all the Jews were thinking about the Messiah because there was, a, there was an expectation in the first century. There were so many things going on, and there, honestly, there were many false messiahs. The, the, the Bible tells us about a couple of them. And so... To then declare Jesus is the Messiah, you have to have a lot of proofs. And that's what he's doing. It says he's reasoning and persuading. Here's the prophecy. Here's the text. You know it. It's in your scrolls in your synagogue. I'm telling you, Jesus did this. And I've got scads of witnesses. When he talks about the resurrection, he tells us that in 1 Corinthians 15. He has verse after verse after verse after verse after verse is the evidence. And if you don't believe me, go talk to them. And he even mentions there in 1 Corinthians 15, there were 500 people at one sitting that saw Jesus, talked to Jesus, or ministered to Jesus after he was resurrected. And by the way, they're all still living. Why do you think he says that? If you don't believe me, go talk to them. They're still alive. So, I mean, it's... Jesus, or excuse me, Paul is, I'm getting all animated here. Paul is, Paul is trying to, here's the, here's the prophecy. Here's what Jesus did, and here's the proof. Now, what are you going to do with that truth? Are those 357 uh, Old Testament? That's correct. They're all in the Old Testament, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay? That's wonderful. <clears throat> 
Where am I here? And when they, verse 6, and when they opposed and reviled him, that, that word you could translate slandered him, blasphemed him, he shook off his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. I will go now to the Gentiles. Now that we have seen him say that before. He's done that before. I've been faithful with what the Lord wants me to do. I presented the text to you. I presented the proof to you. You're blaspheming and slandering me. You're rejecting this. You're going to have answer for this to the Lord. But I'm moving now to the Gentiles. Was that permanent? If he'd said it before, he's saying it again. In this city. In this synagogue. Okay, when did that actually take place historically? Well, uh, you're asking a much larger question than this text is saying. But um, the large mega question is that uh, it's, it's, we're there now. There are more Gentiles coming to Christ at this time in the mid-50s then there are Jews coming to Christ, and that is only going to grow. Exponentially, it's going to grow. So, um, in a very real sense, the, the, the Jewish people of the first century and into the second century who reject the message that, Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, will see the evidence of what Paul says here. But in this context, and it's only in this context, Paul will stop going to the synagogue in Corinth. I'm no longer going to go to the synagogue in Corinth. I've, given, I've been here. I've been here a while, but I'm not going to come back anymore. Your blasphemy and slandering of me and of the message means I'm moving now to the Gentiles. And so that's, that's what he's going to be doing. And as you're going, to, you're going to see here a little bit later on, he's going to spend 18 months in Corinth. And he's not in the synagogue. So is this similar to the Matthew 10? Yes. Yeah, it is. It is. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what Jesus had said. That's a, that's, and Paul is really, Paul is paraphrasing what Jesus said in Matthew 10. That's exactly right. And so, I mean, that's, uh, uh, that's one of those things, even in modern missions today, at what point do you say, your rejection is so firm, I'm moving on. And that's, that's, a hard, that's a hard decision to make. And many missionaries have struggled with that. Even within what? Within individuals. Oh, I, yeah, it, Woody, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have, I mean, I'll be very transparent. I've been in, in a number of situations over my life where I've spent so much time with an individual that just absolutely refuses to even consider the claims of Christ. I just make a decision. I, you know, I pray and say, Lord, this is a decision I'm going to make. I have so many other people I could meet with. This is just not getting anywhere. And I just, I, I stop trying to reach out. I mean, I'm still available. I'll let the person know. But this consistent, um, there's one guy, I have, he's a very, very well-known doctor, um, he was in one of my other Bible studies, very antagonistic to the faith. He came out of curiosity, and we would just constantly verbal battles <laughs> over his rejection of everything. And I just, I got to the point, I said, you know, well, I almost said his name there. You know, I don't, I don't think it's valuable for you and me because of, of just your antagonism to what is being stated. I'm going to keep praying for you, and I'm always available. But um, us continuing to battle over this is not getting you anywhere because you're just absolutely adamant that this isn't true. And it's really not getting me anywhere because I absolutely am convinced this is true. Jesus Christ changed my life totally in 1972, and I've given my life to him. But if you don't accept that and you don't want to hear any more about it, uh, I, it's probably not really helpful for you and me to continue. I'm always here. He, you know, he's called me a couple times, but that maybe uh, is a decision everybody agrees with. But boy, you get to a point where the antagonism and the bitterness—it's um, just not getting anywhere. You really aren't. 
and so I just made that decision. But that, at that point, you just have to take consolation in the fact that you know, 99 are there and one's missing, and the shepherd goes after the one. Mm -hmm. And he, this man, even one of my other friends, who was a doctor colleague of his, got him an ESV study Bible. And he was, Rod, I used to name Rod, my friend, was trying to get him, because he came to the Bible study for about 10 months. And he was just, uh, his wife, oh my goodness. We had dinner with Rod and his wife one evening. And she, he, he's mildly antagonistic. She's thoroughly antagonistic. <laughs> I mean, she's just hurling these things. We're sitting here having dinner, and she's hurling all these accusations. Like, Oh my goodness, I'm going to leave this now with indigestion, a headache. And, I mean, it was absolutely unbelievable. I mean, I've been in situations like that, but that was, that was absolutely stunning. She wasn't holding back, huh? Not at all. I mean, uh, it, was, it, was really, it was really something. And I think in just our wisdom and our, our own, how we look at it, you have to make a decision. Is it worth my time and effort? He's heard the truth many, 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 many times. But he just, uh, very hard, very wonderful guy, but a very, very hard heart when it came to spiritual things. Okay, verse 7. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus. That's a Latin name. A worshiper of God. That means that he is probably a Gentile who is worshiping in the synagogue. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Question. Even though Paul did not go into the synagogue anymore, was there a witness to those in the synagogue? Right next door there was. So, I mean, again, I'm getting animated here. but So you have two individuals who have come to faith. You have a Jew, Crispus, who's ruled the synagogue, and you have a Roman, Titius Justus. They both have come to faith in Christ, and they're both prominent individuals in the city of Corinth. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Paul will refer to this event in 1 Corinthians. In the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, he will refer to all the stuff we just read. Because he's writing a letter to them in, in the book of 1 Corinthians. But now, remember our other thing. Remember Thessalonica? Remember Berea? The antagonism against Paul is growing. They're slandering him. And so now Paul is starting to consider, should I leave? Should I move on? And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, because I am with you. Is that an important thing for him to hear? Oh, yeah. Clear instruction from God. Don't leave. Keep on speaking in the Agora and Corinth, because I'm with you. No one will attack you to harm you. Second key promise, because many people in the city are my people. You've heard from the antagonist, Paul, but there are many faithful people. You're going to be protected. I'm with you, so keep doing it. And so the text tells us at the end of verse 11, and he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Eighteen months he's in Corinth. The only city he will be longer in terms of the amount of time will be Ephesus in the third missionary journey. So, I mean, you can see he is making a, under clear instruction of God, but he's making a very serious commitment to the Corinthian church. And I, I want to suggest it's because of its strategic location and because of the fact that so many people from all over the empire would come to Corinth in the merchant trade and commercial activity. This is a fantastic city for the church to be planted and growing. And that's exactly what's going to happen. So Paul's, I mean, obviously it's under the guidance of the Lord, but it's also just human. He sees this is a strategic area. And so that's part of his strategy, and you see it working. 
Now, it's really fascinating what happens in the next paragraph, 12 through 17, because we learn something here on how the Roman Empire looked at this growing movement called the church. So before we move into that, any questions? Are you still all pretty much with me? I can't believe it. Did he what? Yeah, uh, I mean the, the main. Um, you see this in a number of the places where Paul goes. If he's in a Greco-Roman city, he will spend most of his time in the agora. That's the Greek word for the marketplace, which is a very large. Uh, you know, like Boston Commons in Boston, a big open area, or Williamsburg, I'm talking about Colonial, the open or like Central Park in New York City, where a very large open area where there aren't buildings, but it's where the people would mill. And the, the, each side had little uh, shops. But that's where Paul is, and that's where the people would come day after day after day. That's where the philosophers would gather. That's where the merchants got, that's where Roman soldiers were. So most of the population, he would have an opportunity to speak to them and talk to them about Christ. And that's what he's doing. It's not door-to-door evangelism. I I mean, I don't think so. There's no evidence of that. But we know his strategy was always, to the Jews, I'm going to the synagogues. To the Gentiles, I'm going to be in the Agora, the large open marketplace spaces of the typical Roman city. It's an interesting contrast. God's wrath, and forgive me, I don't retain it. The, the city that he destroyed, or Lot's way turns Sodom and Gomorrah? Right. Where he destroyed that city because of the state theater and where they are. Absolutely. And they have they approach that? How do they want? How, how God spoke to oh. Paul, to Professor Kentucky. Wrath versus love. <clears throat> Would the people of Sodom and Gomorrah have had an opportunity to hear the truth about God? Mm-hmm. And how long? Yeah. Years and years and years. Lot, his family, and so on. Um, and in plus, I mean, some other things. But will. You know, Glenn will ask this very bluntly. Will the people that rejected the message of the gospel in Corinth, will they experience the wrath of God if they've rejected every, every revelation of God? Yes. It's always a matter... I can't not say that. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. We do not know, and we really do not, Glenn, we do not know how much time there was in terms of Sodom and Gomorrah and what they would have heard. Here, in terms of the special revelation of God, this is a very short period of time, you know, 18 months. But no one in that city of Corinth, when Paul will leave Corinth and move on, and and he's going to head back to to Jerusalem then, uh, no one in that city is going to be able to say, I never heard about the special revelation. I've heard about either directly or indirectly, and you know that's and it's it's fascinating too because there are so many things in that dialogue in Genesis 19 where Adam, sorry, Abraham is talking with God. You know, God, you're going to wait. Look, Lord, how about if we find a hundred people down there that are your fathers, will you spare the city? Can't find a hundred. How about fifty? can't find 50. How about 20? Can't find 20. How about 10? And so Abram says, all right, Lord, you are just in your judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. This isn't a temper tantrum. This isn't an impulsive act of the deity. This is justice. And if it's the same, it's the hard, it's the hard, hard aspect of of our faith but let me paraphrase something C.S. Lewis said in The Great Divorce one of his wonderful books hell is the greatest monument to human freedom there is God does not send anyone to hell they choose it 
At the great white throne, he will say, you chose your entire life to reject everything I sent to you to lead you back to me. You chose to live your life without me. You chose to hate me. You chose to deride me. You chose to mock my servants. You chose to make fun. You chose throughout your entire life to reject me. So eternity is just the ongoing trajectory of what you chose. I'm not sending you to hell. That's what you chose. That's why Lewis says in his creative way, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom there is. God is not forcing people. So, anyway, another wonderful bunny trail. Can, um, can we do this? Twelve? Let's see if we can do this. Now, when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, Achaia is that whole big province in which Athens and Corinth and all that were located. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the tribunal. The, tri- the Greek word for tribunal is really bema. And if you and I would get on a plane right now, I would take you to the ruins of Corinth and I'd show exactly where the bema seat was. Exactly where Galileo sat. It's in the Agora. It's on the south side of the Agora. And there's a little, it's almost like a little throne and that's where he would sit. Because the proconsul, in this case, and by the way, we have a lot of extra biblical evidence about Galileo. We know he existed. We know who he is. And so he, he's brought, Paul is brought to him. Here's Galileo sitting on the Bama seat in the Agora. This man is the charge. This is their charge. This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Whose law? Roman law. The Collegium Licitium. Aren't you glad I told you that? That's the Latin. But it was the law of the Roman Empire that governed religious worship. And Rome Rome recognized almost anything you did, as long as you didn't cause a problem. And so what they're charging, it's really serious. He's preaching something that isn't recognized in the Roman law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth... Galileo said to the Jews, If this were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since this is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. So from Galileo, representing the Roman Empire as proconsul of Corinth, what's he saying? This isn't our problem. You're arguing over the meanings of words and names? That's not upsetting the Roman Empire. I'm not going to deal with this stuff. So from Rome's perspective in the middle of the 50s, the Christian church is just sort of like a subset of Judaism. It's, it's kind of the same. You're talking about the same things. Both talk about Messiah. Your dispute is over whether Jesus is a Messiah or somebody else's. Rome doesn't care about that. Now that's going to change. That, you know, as you get farther, deeper into the New Testament, the empire is going to become more and more hostile. But at this point, we, we're not going to adjudicate the dispute over something you both agree on in the coming Messiah, one side says he's come, one side says, that doesn't matter to us. You handle it. And so it's instructive at this point how Rome is looking at Christianity. It's a little subset of Judaism. We're not going to get involved in this stuff until a little later. And he drove them from the tribunal, meaning the Bema, that seat in the southern part of the Agora. But they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. Now, by the way, that becomes important because Sosthenes had also converted to Christ. And if you look at the first verse of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Sosthenes is mentioned. He's a colleague of Paul's in writing to the Corinthians. So Luke is just dropping another name on us that's going to come up again in the New Testament. 
But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. In the indifference of the Roman Empire at this point. Isn't that kind of exciting? And historically, we know this. We have lots of evidence. This is how Rome was looking at it. Why did Claudius just throw the Jews out? Because it was caused, the dispute over Christus was causing a riot, and Rome doesn't like riots. And so they crush them. Hmm? So get yeah, yeah. Uh, so, who who is they that beat the ruler of the synagogue? Jews beat the the, the ruler of the synagogue. It it would be the, the the group that is referring up in verse twelve. The Jews made a united attack. Almost always, uh, Luke does this and John does this in his writings. The Jews doesn't mean all Jews, like an anti-Semitic. It's the leaders. The leaders of the the leaders of the synagogue, the powerful Jewish leaders. It could be not only synagogue; it could be the commercial uh, people involved. But they're they're going to lose if Paul's right. They're going to lose out if Paul's right, because what Paul's teaching means everything about Judaism is fulfilled. We don't need to do all this stuff anymore. So why do they beat up Sosthenes? Because he, yeah, he is he is a he's a Christian. Who has, uh, or a Jew who's come to know Christ. And, um, so yeah, 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 uh, I'm going to, okay, you're not going to deal with Paul. We're going to make an example of Sosthenes. Hmm. We're going to make an example if they go, and, Paul, and what's, what's Galileo's response? Oh, do what you want, I don't care. You're not getting involved. You want to beat up Sosthenes, a convert who's from the synagogue, maybe another synagogue, there were more than one. Um, that's all right, I don't care. You do get a little bit of a sense, too, of how um, indifferent Rome is to moral ethical issues, as long as it doesn't upset the empire. I mean, that's just, it's, it's a callousness. But, you know, in authoritarian regimes, that's usually the case. Just don't, don't upset the apple cart, but I don't particularly care what you do. I don't particularly care what you say. Don't upset. If you upset, we're going to crush you like a bug. All right, um, this is really good. Are we any questions? Can I go on? Mm-hmm. Now the next the next paragraph, Paul gets back to to Israel, goes back to Jerusalem, and so the second missionary journey is coming to an end. After this, Paul stayed many days longer. Now they were not sure what that means, how much longer, because he had already been there eighteen months, but he stays a little longer. Then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. Now, just remember the geography of that. Antioch, his sending church, was in Syria. That's all that means. He's going back home. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. So now they go with him. They're joining him. They're going to go back to the church. And again, I mean, I don't know if you want to look at this, but Sancria is a little port city not very far from Corinth. So at Sancria, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. That's an interesting piece of information. Very rarely do you have a record in the Bible of somebody getting their hair cut. I mean, it's like, so what? Well, he tells us because he was under a vow. Probably, probably the Nazarite vow. That It doesn't say that, but Paul's a Jew. And so when you're in a, often a very difficult situation where you're des- de- deeply committed to something for the Lord, number six talks about that. And so presumably that's what he, because one of the vows was, uh, excuse me, one of the aspects of the Nazarite vows, you would not cut your hair. Now that hardly has any meaning to you and me today. I can't really make any meaningful comparisons. But... Perhaps it was the vow uh, that had something to do with during the second missionary journey, I'm going to be deeply committed every day to proclaiming the message and God uh, sustain me with this, enable me with I don't know. But he's the, he's the end now of the second missionary journey. So he gets his hair cut. The vow is over. And he came to Ephesus. Now, if you, you look on the map, Ephesus is across. I mean, you have to go across the Aegean Sea here, but here's Constantinople. Ephesus is right there. So now he's headed home, but he goes across. He's taking a ship across to Ephesus. Ephesus is an extremely important city, which we talked about earlier. We'll see that in coming chapters. 
At Ephesus, he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Will he return to Ephesus? Yes, in the third missionary journey. He will spend close to three years in Ephesus. So he does return there. When he landed at Caesarea, you remember where Caesarea is? It's along the coast of Israel, that port city that Herod the Great had built. He went up, that means he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. Remember, from Caesarea, it's right along the coast. You go up to Jerusalem, that's 2,500 feet above sea level, and then when you're from Jerusalem to Antioch, you're going down almost to sea level. So all Luke is doing is just telling us the geography of Paul's travels. When spending time there, he departed and went from place to place to the next to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all disciples. Verse 23 is the beginning of the third missionary journey. Now this is unusual. We didn't see that in the first missionary journey. We didn't see that in the period between the first and the second missionary journey. Luke is choosing to tell us almost nothing about the interval between the two missionary journeys. But now, verse 23, he's on his third missionary journey. And he's going to retrace his steps through, now you have to go to another map that I provided for you, the one on page 9, but he's going to retrace his steps through Galatia, and he's going to go back to Macedonia and Greece. Well, we have two missionary journeys down and one to go. The third missionary journey is going to be distilled down to just a few highlights, really quick. Because the rest of the book of Acts is how Paul will end up in Rome. But that, we're coming. All right. You know, a great thought paper would be compare and contrast the first and second missionary journey. This would have to be 2,000 words or less. (laughs) But the first missionary journey was just in Galatia, a very small area. Uh, it, it, and yet the second missionary much larger period of time and Paul is now in Europe and he's it's much much greater emphasis on the Greco-Roman world so anyway I don't want to write your paper for you you should do that can I in, just introduce you because we're done I have one more minute but I'm going to introduce you look at verse 24 now a Jew named Apollos a native of Alexandria came to Ephesus Apollos Probably next to Paul, he was the most important proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ at this period of time. As you're going to see in a minute, he will be discipled by Priscilla and Aquila. He he was eloquent, he was articulate, and Paul will refer in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he will refer to him and say, listen, he's writing to Corinth. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Because what's going to happen is, Paul was in Corinth, we just read about it, Apollos is going to go back to Corinth and going to spend years there, discipling and teaching the church. And Apollos is going to become like, he's probably the second most important uh, defender and articulator of of Christianity at this point in, in the 50s. And we're going to be introduced to him next week. I just wanted to get you excited. You can't wait to come back next week. Find out a lot more about Apollos. Corinth was kind of high maintenance. It was. It was huge. Oh, it was. That's a good way to put it. And it was, Woody, it was because they're living in the midst of decadence. And how do I represent faithfully Christ? Because they all came out of that so that I don't go back into that. And that's one of the great values of studying 1 Corinthians. I'm going to pray here and we've got to get out. I shouldn't put it that way, but we're, let me pray. <laughs> Lord, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the text. Thank you for these men that want to study it. Thank you for the, uh, the remarkable energy and, and uh, 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 eloquence of the Apostle Paul in situation after situation. He defends the faith, proclaims the faith, articulates the faith, and people respond. There are always two responses in many ways, either those who accept it or those who reject it. And Lord, in our own lives, we want to just be representatives of you in how we live and in what we say. Help us to do that well. 
You're in the process of changing and developing and transforming each and every one of us. We're thankful for that. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his finished work on the cross and his resurrection. Thank you for how in each one of our lives he is continuing his work of transformation, making us each day more and more like your son, the Lord Jesus. So, Lord, as we've been together, we thank you for that. Now dismiss us with your blessing. Take care of us. And all we do and say again, may we represent you well in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.